0: DW. Inside Europe.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, how Russia is using the Israeli Hamas conflict for its own ends. No show for Syria in The Hague as the country is tried for war crimes.
2: I'm here today, first and foremost, for my father, Ali Mustafa, who's been forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime for more than a decade. And I'm also here, obviously, for all of Syria's disappeared.
1: And Ukraine's second winter at war. We meet the international volunteers keeping vital aid stocked up.
3: Since the start, uh, thankfully, we had a lot of doctors here in our association. So they knew exactly which medical supplies we need to get. We were able to get immediately like very valuable equipment and, and help.
1: Those stories and more coming up on the programme.
3: Since it launched its full-scale
1: invasion of Ukraine last February, Russia has attempted to justify its aggression as denazifying its neighbour. The scale of the propaganda used, most of it aimed firmly at the West, has given ordinary Russians a very skewed version of the reasons for the conflict. Over the past week, Russian media have used similar tactics over the surprise Hamas attack on Israel and subsequent retaliation. Kremlin advocates are blaming the Middle East flare-up on the West, particularly the US. For more on what Moscow stands to gain from this narrative, I spoke to Yuri Rusheto, formerly DW's Moscow bureau chief, who since the war has been operating from Riga, Latvia, due to Russian censorship.
4: The reactions in the Russian state-founded media and uh, also on Russian social media fit exactly into the same narrative or framework that the Kremlin is using to explain Russia's war in Ukraine. In one sentence, the West is to blame, especially the USA. And in doing so, Israel is being even humiliated as part of the West. In this conflict here are some examples. The host of the News of the Week program on the Russia1 Russia channel, Uh, TV channel Dmitry Kisilov with pleasure listed the stereotypes about Israel that had developed over the years, which in his opinion uh, were demolished by the Hamas attack, quote, like golden leaves in the autumn wind. So he mentioned the security uh, of the Israeli state, the power of the Israeli army and the Mossad. Um, then there was also a reaction from Dmitry Medvedev, um, Russia's former president and prime minister on his Telegram channel. He called the Hamas attack an event that could have been expected. He wrote what Washington and its allies should have been doing. Uh, the United States is a key player there, he said. But instead of actively working on a Palestine israel Israeli settlement, these idiots, Medvedev said, interfered in Russian politics. So, Russian propagandists didn't hide the fact that the conflict in the Middle East is beneficial to Moscow. The last example, maybe TV presenter Tigran Kiyosanian, for example, said uh, any conflict in the world is now beneficial to Russia where U.S. interests collide.
1: And Yuri, as well as propaganda for its domestic audience, I understand from other media reports that Russia is joining the misinformation about the conflict in English media as well. What can you tell us about this?
4: Yeah, there are indeed various examples of how Russian state propaganda spreads false information. Currently, there is a discussion about an Israeli tank that was allegedly destroyed by the Hamas people. In reality, it's said to be a Russian tank that was apparently destroyed in Ukraine. Both sides, Russians and the Ukrainians, tried to present their version and it's very clear that this conflict is about the battle of propaganda. Another example is the supposedly Western weapons used by Hamas. Some claim that the weapons came from Ukraine to true. Western NATO states supply weapons. Others say no, these are weapons that came from Russia because the Russians captured these weapons in Ukraine. So we're experiencing one propaganda battle after another one and to be simply have to be very careful and always double check the facts or also consider the results of independent investigative experts.
1: Now, you mentioned in your article for DW, and I think this will be of great interest to our listeners, that many members of the Hamas terrorist group regularly visit Russia. The most recent was to Moscow in March. What can we read into this relationship and these recent talks?
4: Yeah, firstly, Hamas is banned in Russia. Uh, the Russians don't consider it a terrorist organization. Uh, ultimately, official contacts with representatives of Hamas are normal uh, from a Russian perspective. During the last visit of Hamas representatives here in Moscow, uh, there were talks uh, with, uh, with the Russian deputy foreign minister. Historically, Russia's attitude to Hamas has changed. At the beginning, first in the Soviet Moscow, people saw it as an armed Islamist militia that ruled the Gaza Strip. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Russia regularly condemned the group's terrorist attacks, describing them as Islamist fanatics. But Russia hasn't recognized Hamas as a terrorist organization. And when Hamas won the Palestinian parliamentary elections in 2006, relations improved again. At the traditional end-of-the-year press conference, President Vladimir Putin said that Hamas must be treated as a real political force since it was legally elected. So since then, senior members of the Hamas leadership have attended regular meetings with the Russian foreign ministry and with, with high representatives in Moscow.
1: And while we're talking to you, Yuri, I think it'd be really interesting to find out what ordinary Russians are making of what's going on in the Middle East right now. Is there a lot of interest?
5: Well, the question
4: whether Russians are interested in Middle East issues or not is, of course, uh, yeah, very much related or dependent on, on the level of education. Uh, the more educated people are, the more interested they are in such topics. I would say the general public has very little insight into the conflict. Uh, it's too far reaching and Russian media are more concerned with Ukraine. But I've got to say that Israel is very important for many Russians. There is a huge Russian-speaking community in Israel. When the war against Ukraine started, for example, a lot of people immigrated to Israel. I know a lot of Russians who uh, either have uh, an Israel passport uh, as a second citizenship or have a lot of contacts, their personal contacts. Uh, These people, of course, are very interested in what is happening there.
1: Next, it'd be really interesting to talk about Russia's reaction to the latest developments in the Middle East, and also about the country's relationship with both Israel and the Palestinian territories.
4: Well, Russia's official reaction was reserved so far. The foreign ministry expressed in a statement Moscow's serious concern And indicated that the conflict, which has been going on for 75 years, has no forceful solution. I've got to say that uh, Russia traditionally maintains good and uh, equally distant relations with both sides of the conflict. What's remarkable in this regard is that the Kremlin condemned the violence, but not the attack by the Palestinian Hamas that started this conflict, this armed conflict, uh, the weekend. Unlike the European states, unlike the USA, Moscow expressly didn't condemn the Hamas attack. This refusing is particularly criticized by the Russian-speaking Israelis uh, we spoke to, because it would be an important signal, they say, a signal of solidarity for them, but this signal is still missing from Moscow.
1: And finally, Yuri, does Russia see itself as playing a role in helping to mediate a return to peace in this conflict?
4: Moscow is apparently now holding talks with representatives of Arab states, according to a Russian Middle East expert who is close to the Kremlin and who I spoke to. It's, I think, very important to Moscow to be seen in a different light than just the war against Ukraine. Moscow wants to regain its reputation, that is very clear. Um, however, it's unclear whether the Kremlin has that
1: power. Yuri Rosheto, their formerly DW's Moscow bureau chief, now operating from Riga. Ukraine and its supporters were already worried about donor fatigue long before the new conflict between Israel and Hamas began commanding the world's attention. But as Terry Schultz found out in Vienna, there is grassroots support for Ukraine that shows no signs of wavering.
6: The ambulance parked in a peaceful courtyard in Vienna doesn't look much like a vehicle ready for frontline war duty, but it's getting a makeover, starting on the inside.
7: So this is actually uh, the one thing that i will probably be most excited about getting. It does everything uh, for everything. They are Ukrainian soldiers
6: fighting on the front line and foreigners who've gone to help them, desperate for mobile medical capabilities to treat those wounded in combat against Russia.
7: I think six people can be around the patient in this ambulance and that gives them a lot of capability to work on uh, difficult cases, so...
6: And the man proudly demonstrating the gleaming vehicle is Adam Shepard, one of the founders of Vienna Mission for Ukraine, VM4U, a group of more than 200 international volunteers in the Austrian capital, doing everything possible to help those fighting and those who fled. The organization started with transporting evacuees from the Ukrainian border, including an entire orphanage, and sending back supplies.
7: Our role in Vienna, mission for Ukraine, is we get and support the Ukrainian-led organizations here in Vienna that need uh, large support, such as what the international community can bring, vehicles, drivers, uh, a lot of time and money. A diesel is not necessarily cheap when you're running all the time. And you guys
6: are all volunteers, right?
7: We're all volunteers. Nobody takes a salary or any compensation.
6: In January, Shepard was approached by the Austrian charity First Aid First Hand, which had a German ambulance it wanted to donate to Ukraine. Through his contacts, Shepherd found Simon, a Norwegian medic working on the front line. Simon is speaking to us from the war zone and prefers we not use his last name for security reasons. He explained why this ambulance coming from Vienna was so crucial for them.
8: Me and my team, we work in the red zone and close to the red zone, so we see a lot of injury that um, attacks a lot of the worst that is basically our everyday. The front line is really hard. There is a lot of shelling attacks. Um, Every day we are under shelling by artillery, tanks, mortars, airstrikes, chemical attacks. So the Russian forces are using everything in their power to take out Ukrainians and to do as much harm as possible.
6: Vienna-based Ukrainian volunteer Oleg Novikov, who started another group called Ukraine, Y-O-Ukraine, Worked with a VM for you to fill the ambulance with those items most needed on the battlefield.
3: Since the start, uh, thankfully, we had a lot of doctors here in our association, uh, Ukraine. So they knew exactly which medical supplies we need to get. They knew the nice connections from the local hospitals. So just through networking, we were able to get uh, immediately like very valuable equipment and, and help.
6: Aside from the ambulance project, Novikov works particularly on sending in supplies for diabetes treatment.
3: So whenever I get supplies from donors here in Europe, uh, I ask people in Ukraine to provide the pictures that they have actually received those supplies, just to make sure that they are actually getting to their destination. So I have hundreds, maybe a thousand pictures of kids holding different kinds of insulin supplies or diabetes supplies, because kids also have diabetes and their families are not always able to, to uh, to get the medicine.
6: Novikov says it's getting harder to gather donations as the war drags on.
3: So, uh, those are labels. What is supposed to be, like in He
6: shows me around, around the room the says, volunteer organizations uh, share for storage.
3: This is our so-called medical warehouse because it's cooler in this uh, in this room than in other rooms. So right now this is filled with room, It's usually full with medical stuff. Right now, only only few things remain, but.
6: But if it's a bit difficult to stockpile supplies in Vienna, just imagine the front line in Ukraine. Simon doesn't have to imagine it. He lives it every day.
8: It is super important for us as volunteers in this country and for the Ukrainians that the people continue to help, continue to send donations, supply, money, and empathize with what is happening here. Without the help from abroad, this is almost impossible. So by helping and contributing with, if it's money or equipment, you are really doing an amazing thing and you are helping to save lives in Ukraine and in the
6: front. Last month, Adam Shepard and a team of volunteers delivered the ambulance filled with supplies to Simon, stopping off in Lviv on the way to have it painted in camouflage colors, a trip that took 10 days in total. It will be a lifesaver for the Ukrainians and their supporters that gives much to the volunteers, too.
7: Delivering the ambulance was very fulfilling, as is all the volunteer work we routinely do. But meeting Simon for the first time, wow, that was something very inspiring. Uh, It was like meeting a saint. Uh, the gift of his inspiration is something that I can keep with me and derive motivation and guidance from forever.
6: Shepard says the experience made him appreciate anew that living a safe life in Vienna means he can do even more to help Simon and others in Ukraine. There's already another van full of supplies on its way. Terry Schultz, DW, Vienna.
1: Still to come on Inside Europe, Syria boycotts a hearing at The Hague over its alleged civil war atrocities. Now, DW keeps you updated on the latest news from across Europe all day, every day. You can stay up to date by visiting our website dw.com or checking out DW Europe's social media pages. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. For the first time, Syria is being tried at an international court over alleged atrocities committed during the country's civil war. The proceedings are taking place at the UN's International Court of Justice in The Hague. The Netherlands and Canada started the case in June. The two countries allege that Syria is violating its obligations under the UN Convention Against Torture, which Syria signed in 2004. Syria boycotted the hearing on Tuesday. Phnom Van Tetz reports.
5: Please be seated. The white seats reserved for the Syrian Arab Republic in the Great Hall of Justice remained empty on Tuesday. Canada and the Netherlands are alleging that Syria has violated the Convention Against Torture. It's the first time Syria is being held accountable for its crimes at an international court.
4: The circumstances that have brought Canada and the Netherlands before the court, namely the torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment of tens of thousands of persons in Syria, are nothing short of tragic.
5: That was René Lefebvre, the agent for the Netherlands, After court, he said he wasn't surprised the Syrians failed to show up.
4: No, I was not surprised, even though my hopes were high that they would
0: show up today uh, after the court has given them three months to prepare for these proceedings. Uh, But in, in light of their behavior throughout the dispute resolution process, including the negotiations and the way that they have approached this, I was not surprised.
5: The two sides exchanged 66 diplomatic notes and had two in-person meetings in Abu Dhabi to try and negotiate. Every day counts, Lefebvre said. In the three months the case has been delayed, the two countries allege 15 detainees have died of torture. Speaking to reporters on the steps of the Peace Palace, Alan Kessel, Canada's top lawyer, said Syria had its chance.
0: Canada and the Netherlands have called on the court today to put in place measures to help stop the torture. We have given Syria an opportunity to be here today. They chose, regrettably, to be absent. This doesn't mean that the world is absent.
5: Outside the court, dozens of Syrians protested. A young woman clutched a framed photo of a balding man with glasses and a light grey moustache.
2: Uh, my name is Wafa Ali Mustafa. I'm here today, um, first and foremost, for my father, Ali Mustafa, who's been forcibly disappeared by the Assad regime for more than a, te- a decade. And I'm also here, obviously, for all of Syria's disappeared.
5: Wafa traveled to The Hague from Germany.
2: This court, in this case, is not about my father's fate. I don't think that this case will help releasing or freeing anyone. But I hope that it will at least help uh, uh, maybe stopping the torture and the ill treatment that thousands, hundreds of thousands of detainees are being exposed to on a daily basis.
5: Many of those protesting want to see Bashar al-Assad prosecuted. That is something this court cannot do, says Ibrahim Alabi.
9: The case is being heard at the International Court of Justice because Syria is party to the Torture Convention, uh, and so is the Netherlands and Canada. The International Court of Justice is the court that hears uh, interstate dispute when there is a lack of application by one party or lack of compliance by one party to a convention. In this case, the Torture Convention
5: Attempts to get Syria referred to the International Criminal Court have been repeatedly vetoed at the UN Security Council by Russia and China. Olabi has been advising the Dutch government on this case. He says it doesn't matter that Syria didn't show up.
9: What matters is that uh, the evidence was put before a public hearing, Uh, a range of evidence from all sorts of torture and sexual violence and rape and enforced disappearance that's been taking place since at least 2011, and the entire world heard that that was happening and is still happening, and therefore, under this hearing for interim measures, it was important for this hearing for the Netherlands and Canada to stress that this is uh, something that's ongoing.
5: Many here hope it's a reminder to those looking to normalise relations with Syria the country was invited back into the Arab League in May and Assad has been invited to COP28 later this year.
9: The case is so important because it, uh, at a very sensitive time, it brings back to the forefront that torture is being committed at the state policy level, has been committed and is still being committed. And there are people that are suffering as we speak now.
5: Despite Syria's absence, the case will continue. Fernand Van Tetz, DW, The Hague.
1: And we're delighted to tell you that Inside Europe is once again an award winner. This week, we picked up a gold medal and listeners' choice award at the Signal Awards for podcasting. Our Women of Europe episode, which commemorated International Women's Day, was the one that helped us to victory. On behalf of Helen, Kate, me, our team of correspondents and sound engineers, we'd like to say thank you very much if you voted for us. And by the way, one of DW's other podcasts, Cannabis Cowboys, also won a Signal Award in the business category. Thousands of investors lost money in a crowdfunding cannabis scam. And in this true crime investigation, we try to unravel the truth.
4: I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the
9: story of Juicy Fields.
5: I've lost... 20K.
9: I had 350,000 euros in the account. And the scam might
10: just continue.
9: We have
8: owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. Money, money, green, you know, like
11: everybody likes
8: money.
4: In this investigative podcast series, we entered a world that we never expected
12: to find.
11: It bears all the trademarks
12: for Russian nothing. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy.
4: This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money, and never ending hype. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Now to our question of the week. Over a hundred years ago, on October the 15th, 1923, to counter hyperinflation, Germany introduced a new currency called the Rentenmark. Sadly, it only lasted a year. But we want to know the name of Germany's most famous modern age currency, just before the country adopted the euro. Was it the Goldmark, the Reichmark or the Deutschmark? The poll is up on Spotify, so you can head over there right now to take part. Last week, we asked you about the famous Berlin Wall crossing between East and West Berlin, which, of course, was Checkpoint Charlie. And for more interesting stories from all over Europe, remember to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, as two German state election results show a shift to the right, what can Chancellor Scholz do to win back voters? Paris tries to clean up for next year's Olympics, but the city is being overrun by sprinters of a different kind. Bedbugs. Turning up at Maud Mercier's apartment,
0: a friend who lives in the east of Paris. Hello Maud. Please come in. Thank you. Did you ever see bed bugs in your apartment? Yes. Where?
13: On me. On Mm. the skin.
0: I'm just looking at these floorboards differently now. I bet they love going down in those little gaps.
14: And you don't see that. You can't see that. No. God knows what's down there.
1: As Pope Francis holds talks on the future of the Catholic Church, conservatives are threatening to halt major reforms. And young people are leaving North Albania in their droves, so many of the region's traditions could die out.
15: One of my main focuses is the old, almost excellent gastronomy. I am working every day to use very old peasant recipes and foods that people used to live from. And foods that are really simple, made of three, four ingredients, maximum. And both are very organic or very delicious. But furthermore, above all, they have such a great
0: history. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe.
1: In Germany, voters in the southern state of Bavaria and Hesse in the west made their displeasure at Chancellor Olaf Scholz's three-party coalition clear last weekend. The centre-right Christian Democrats and Christian Social Union retained their dominance in both states. In Hesse, the Conservatives gained 11 new seats in the state parliament. As expected, the far-right Alternative for Germany, or AFD, party also made major gains, taking second place in Hesse and third place in Bavaria. Voters are clearly frustrated with the country's immigration policies, as Germany has, out of all EU countries, welcomed the lion's share of migrants and refugees over the past few years. That has put pressure on local public services and the availability of housing and, according to some, changed the country for the worse. I asked EW political correspondent Emily Gordine what message German voters were sending to Berlin two years into Schultz's coalition.
13: I think it tells us that many Germans are not very happy with the government of Chancellor Scholz. That comes down to several things, right? I mean, on the one hand, this is a government that's made up of three coalition partners who are very different. And over the past few weeks and months, we've seen a lot of infighting. And in a time where you've got a lot of insecurity, a lot of uncertainty, that fighting doesn't help. Essentially, what they also need to be doing is, it's always easy to say, to take people's you know, worries more seriously. But what we saw recently with the heating bill that the economy minister, Robert Habig wanted to put forth, it was such bad communication that it also feeds into a certain resentment of climate policies. And I think that's something the government will have to work on.
1: Now in Bavaria, State Premier Markus Söder of the Conservatives sees this victory as a a chance to pressure the federal government into a much tougher immigration policy. Now he's been pushing for this for several years now. How will Schultz's three coalition partners respond to that?
13: Well, I mean, first of all, I think that it's a bit rich from Markus Söder to say that because his party is not the one that profited from the debates around migration. His party got the worst results since the 1950s. Now we know historically that far-right parties can feed off migration as a topic. So yes, I wouldn't be surprised if the government did toughen its stance on migration. We've already seen that interior minister Nancy Fiesa has given her go-ahead to create stationary border controls along the Polish border. But that being said, I saw one of those in Bavaria recently and spoke to quite a few people and there's a lot of doubt over how effective they really are. So yes, it's going to put pressure on the government, but the problem of migration isn't something that the German government can solve on its own. It needs an EU solution for this.
1: Now, Emily, in both state elections, we saw the resurgence of the far right AFD, which was expected because they've been polling very well over the past few months. How would they be emboldened by these wins?
13: Well, I mean, we saw the images of the party leaders, the federal party leaders, Alice Weidel and Tino Kompalo, celebrating, right? I mean, so they definitely feel emboldened to keep going as they have. Their stance is essentially Eurosceptic, anti-migration and especially anti-climate policies. And they know that they can feed off people's insecurities and uncertainties. They also know that the Conservatives are trying to match with them a little bit when it comes to their rhetoric, but it's not really working. I mean, the Conservatives were in power for 16 years under Angela Merkel, and that gives the AFD enough to argue that they are in part to blame for where the country stands today. And I was talking to a political scientist um, in the state of Hesse recently, and he, what he told me is that the AfD doesn't really need to do very much. They profit of the atmosphere and the low popularity of the federal government under Olaf Scholz.
1: And of course, this result for the AFD doesn't bode well for elections in three East German states next year, where the far right party is already very popular. What can the coalition do to thwart this threat?
13: I mean, that is the questionable questions, isn't it? And I think, in the case of Germany, one step in the right direction would certainly be that the coalition it can fight less in public. That would help for one, because unity and leadership is one thing that they think they could. F- really thrive off. But yeah, I mean, the task in and of itself is quite a difficult one. And, you know, for the past few years, the world has gone from one crisis to the next, right? We had the COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Ukraine, we're seeing a sluggish economy, migration has been rising, high inflation, the climate crisis isn't going anywhere. And now on top of everything, we have the war in Israel. And the German government can't just make these problems disappear but it can communicate better and it can try and take people's daily lives more seriously and see what they can do. And I think from what we're seeing in terms of rhetoric from the German government is that they're trying to do exactly that. But all of these measures are going to take time until they bear fruit. And the question is, will it be soon enough to counter what is happening in East Germany in these elections next year?
1: And I was talking there to DW's political correspondent, Emily Gordine, in Berlin. Now to Rome, where this month several hundred cardinals, bishops and ordinary Catholics are taking part in a three-week-long summit on the future of the Catholic Church, called by Pope Francis. On the agenda, hot button issues ranging from LGBTQ inclusion to the role of women in the church. Megan Williams reports from Rome.
14: Women. women from around the world march near the Vatican, chanting their demand that the Catholic Church allow women to become priests.
15: Resistance to patriarchy is obedience to God.
14: This is almost a new reformation, the movement for full equality for women in the church, says Susan Rowe. Here from Ottawa, Canada. We're seeing more
5: progress now. We're seeing more support.
14: She's here in Rome with members of the Catholic Network for Women's Equality. The group was one of several dozen, not part of the Vatican Summit, but pushing for change in the Catholic Church from the outside, holding parallel gatherings. For the first time, women in the summit, called a synod, have voting rights in the gathering that will consider expanding the leadership of women in the Catholic Church and female deacons, a figure similar to that of a priest. Church leaders have hailed this synod as a massive listening and prayer session. It comes after a two-year consultation process with parishioners the world over, about one percent of Catholics in all taking part identifying what issues matter to them most. Survivors of priest sex abuse, LGBTQ Catholics and others are hoping their presence outside the Vatican summit will put pressure on those on the inside to make their church more inclusive. Megan Williams, DW, The Vatican.
0: From Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Inside Europe.
1: Sometimes it's called the city of light, sometimes the city of love. But will it now be known as the city of bedbugs? Paris's bedbug problem has, according to the city's mayor, now reached the proportions of a plague. One in ten French people are now, or have been in the last few years, infested with these blood hungry little creatures the size of apple pips. And people are increasingly avoiding going to the cinema, sleeping in hotels, or using public transport for fear of picking one up and bringing it home. This report from John Laurenson.
0: turning up at Maud Mercier's apartment, a friend who lives in the east of Paris. Hello, Hello Maud. How are you? How are you? Um, I'm all right.
13: Fine. Please come in.
0: Thank you. Ah.
13: You know the place, right?
0: Yes. <laughs> I'm just looking at these floorboards differently now. Was that, was that a problem? The floorboards in the space? I bet, I bet they love going down in those little gaps.
14: And you don't see that. You can't no. see that. No. So God knows what's down
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever see bed bugs in your apartment? Yes. Where?
13: On me. On mm-hmm. the skin. En français. Okay. Bon, d'accord,
14: okay.
0: <laughs> no, let's <laughs> go to say, oui, oui, oui,
14: technique.
0: At which point, perhaps it's the emotion, she switches to French.
10: I had bites, but Frederick and our son didn't. And it wasn't every night, but the bites were really itchy, and I developed an allergy, and my arm doubled in size.
0: This two-room flat that Maud shares with her partner and their 10-year-old son was infested with bedbugs this summer. But as for many of the now millions of French people who have been confronted with this problem, it took a while for her to figure out what was going on.
13: Mm-hmm. Then, one day,
10: I was advised to get a bedbug sniffer dog in. So the dog came to the flat, a basset hound called Watson. And Watson put his paw on our bed and on our son's bed to tell us there were bedbugs in both.
0: We sit down on the sofa bed that has been treated and now smells strongly of geraniums. And Maud recollects what it was like when she found out
10: her flat was infested. I <laughs> je I could no longer sleep. I put white sheets on the bed so that I could see them and left the light on through the night. I was afraid to sleep. Also, it's difficult to talk about even with your friends. In fact, you're ashamed, which is partly because people think getting bed bugs is a question of hygiene, which it isn't. I have a friend who said, maybe if you'd done this, maybe if you'd done that, and I explained to him that cleanliness is not a factor. And two minutes later, he was saying, maybe if you'd wash this thing better. The two things are associated in people's minds. Bed bugs have,
0: of course, been around forever. They went through a bad period after humans started using industrial-strength insecticides such as DDT. But when these were banned they thrived again while some in any case were insecticide resistant more recently cockroaches which are bed bug predators have been on the decline and the fact that people are much more mobile than they used to be is another reason why according to Stéphane Bras, chairman of the French pest control association bed bugs are once more on the rise On a pu constater ces derniers mois une augmentation
7: We've seen, over the past few months, an increase of around 60% on the same period last year in the number of treatments for bed bug infestations. And bedbugs know no frontiers concerning the places they infest. I can confirm that these include cinemas and theatres, hotels and schools. The plan of action being drawn up by the Prime Minister's office is useful because it's going to draw attention to the problem. It's important that people be aware that the bedbug problem exists and be able to identify them without panicking. Aware the French
0: suddenly are out in the streets of Paris. All the people I met knew about the problem.
6: If I take the metro, I look before I sit down to check that there's nothing moving. Now, whenever we see the slightest
10: spot, we think, maybe it's bedbugs. We worry about that
6: all the time
10: now.
13: In my family, we're completely obsessed with this sort of thing. So we no longer sit down in trains. And we check our clothes every time we go home before entering the house. And just in case, we put all our clothes straight into the washing machine to make sure there are no bedbugs. Back
0: at Maud Mercier's apartment, she shows me an armchair where, a few weeks ago, she saw a bedbug running across the armrest. After trying and failing to treat the problem herself, she got professionals in and they zapped the bedbugs, hopefully definitively her life she says is now getting back to normal last week she says she even went to the cinema john lawrenson dw paris
1: Now, it may have slipped your mind that the World Hydrogen Congress has been taking place in Rotterdam this week. But hydrogen has long been touted as one of the alternatives to fossil fuels for the future of Europe's energy consumption. The gas produces no carbon dioxide when it's burned, so fits in nicely with the European Commission's Green Deal, the plan by which the continent hopes to become carbon neutral by 2050. But here's the rub. Huge amounts of electricity is needed to produce the gas, and this often requires the use of fossil fuels, which kind of defeats the object. But in the last few years, attention has turned to green hydrogen, where the gas is produced using renewable energy like wind, water or solar. One of the countries spearheading this move is Spain, from where Sharma reports...
0: Hi Ashish, great to see you. How are you? I'm very well
12: Nick, thank you very much. Yeah, no, you're, you're welcome. Uh, World Hydrogen and Renewables. Nick Wilkins welcomes me to a two-day conference called World Hydrogen Renewables Iberia which took place in Madrid recently. The event was organised by World Hydrogen Leaders, a networking platform which has over 1,000 members who work across the hydrogen industry.
0: The event focuses both on renewable energy and hydrogen. So Spain and Portugal have great solar and, and wind and that sector's been going for a while now so that's heavily connected to green hydrogen so there's a huge opportunity for green hydrogen in the sector as well. You'll also find off-takers so companies you know, hard to abate industries looking to understand more about how they can decarbonize. so they'll often attend our events to understand what technology and um, uh, project formats can be relevant to how they can decarbonize over the next 10, 20, 30 years.
12: The increased noise coming from the European Union in exploring ways to capitalize on hydrogen is the challenge which the industry is facing. But the costs of producing green hydrogen are huge and the first area of inversion is in research and development.
11: My name is Dominik Richter. I work as an innovation analyst for Hydrogen Europe. So in the future, the first goal would be to, of course, produce your hydrogen without um, creating any emissions, that you need electricity, hopefully coming then from renewable energy sources. And uh, for that, it's important, first of all, to build up our capacity of renewables to ensure that we can also produce the hydrogen that we need in a um, sustainable manner. And um, what we are looking into in our partnership, in the Clean Hydrogen Partnership for example, is to increase the efficiency of our technologies, to be needing um, less um, electricity to produce a certain amount of hydrogen. Um, Also breakthrough technologies is what we're looking at. What
12: about the costing of all of this research and development? How how does that work out and, and at what pace is the expenditure going in with the development?
11: So exactly, that's that's why it's um, difficult also to convince companies or research institutions to take their own money because you don't know what the outcome will be, if it's something promising. We have a budget in the Clean Energy Partnership of um, 1 billion euros over 7 years and we have an extra um, 200 million now through Repower EU, which was an initiative um, of the European Commission to counter the... Um, the dependencies that we have and as a result of the invasion of the Ukraine. So this was a direct response to ensure that we um, become more energy independent and the 200 million euros that we got on top that will be used for demonstrating hydrogen valleys. One company
12: not shying away from investing in projects, especially within Spain, is called High Deal. Its president and founder, Thierry Leperc has set up a network which includes companies that can help in the production and distribution, but also companies which will utilize the final product. As far as Leperc is concerned, the argument that fossil fuels are needed in the production process is a false one.
1: As we speak, the total capacity of solar cells and modules in the world is 1,000 gigawatts per annum. If you translate it into hydrogen, it's 50 million tons of hydrogen. 1% of the total area of the Mediterranean area would be sufficient to supply the entire consumption of both Europe and Africa. So the only question is, how do you deliver that molecule at a price equivalent to fossil fuels? It's just as simple as that. And then it's a binary question. Either you can or you can't.
12: The problem is that renewable energy, such as solar, wind and hydro, isn't guaranteed 24 hours, 7 days a week. Nor is technology sufficient at the moment to store large quantities of surplus production. Two ingredients which make investors nervous when it comes to putting money into green hydrogen projects. For Alejandro Diego Rosel, energy expert and professor at Madrid's EOI School of Business, there is also another twist. Hydrogen requires lots of water. It can be saline water from the from the sea, but uh, preferably not. So uh, when you are developing a very high water-demanding facility, there is always environmental concern and impact. In Spain, we have some issues with water, for example. We want to become one of the main uh, hydrogen hubs, but at the same time we have this this issue. So uh, there are environmental risks that have to be considered, and they are not minor. Spain is keen to pursue an agenda for renewable energy. The country is ideal in many ways. Swathes of the empty interior are being used for windmills. Solar energy is plentiful, as is hydro. But the production of green hydrogen is a hungry beast. And even combining all those elements still leaves considerable doubt for large-scale production and storage. But the signs are that as technology advances, today's pipeline dream could well become tomorrow's reality. Ashi Sharma, DW, Madrid. And still to come, we meet the woman giving
1: tourists a unique insight into how Albanian Highlanders lived. And you are welcome to message us with your thoughts on any of these reports. You can drop a line to insideeurope at dw.com and we'll be back in touch. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. Finally this week, Northern Albania faces a demographic crisis as thousands of young people leave every year for bigger cities or elsewhere in Europe. But it's not just tourism and community at risk. A long and unique history of tradition, anthropology and feudal social systems based on a historic code could soon disappear completely. Alice Taylor reports from Northern Albania's Lake Komany. The Kanun of
16: Dukagini is a centuries-old code used to manage all sectors of society here in northern Albania. Divided into 12 sections, it tackles everything from how water from local rivers is divided among farmers, family roles, dispute resolution, punishment of crimes, land division, honour, and most importantly, the revered status of guests. While many consider the Canoon outdated and its rules controversial by today's standards, the requirement to put guests above anyone, including family, remains. Mariana Kocheku, a woman in her mid-twenties from Dukajin, is desperate to preserve her roots.
15: What I find amazing as a young girl that actually studied abroad also and graduated in political science and international relations and as a girl that travelled quite a bit in Europe, is the importance of hospitality and the guests in your home. So when it comes to food, when it comes to drinks, when it comes to honoring the person that comes into your house and the port, our dwelling still belongs to God and the guest is still present, is still strong, and is the strongest part of people's life in these areas.
16: Many of Mariana's generation have left, but despite her Italian education, she's decided to stay, opening a small guesthouse on the edge of the lake and promoting her way of life and local artisan crafts online.
15: Northern Albania is definitely Europe's hidden gem, with glorious mountains and mesmerizing fjords, amazingly beautiful lakes, a very rare, unique, strong gastronomy and very kind people. Beautiful traditions and a lot to tell about generations, about its anthropology, social side and customs in general.
16: But this is under threat due to what Mariana calls the need for more infrastructure and little investment from local and national governments.
15: And youth in these areas especially do not see a hope for their future when they lack basic needs like medical care and education needs. But what is the worst is that beautiful, like, health, our beautiful houses and lands are being abandoned. And in this way, it's a big threat to the cultural inheritance, to nature, to the cultural in- to the country in-, in general, to the population it's a- itself.
16: However, she hopes that sustainable and slow tourism, focusing on the unique culture of the highlands, could offer a solution
15: tourism is becoming the main source of living for people in this region more young people are inspired not to leave for other countries but to invest their energies in their future here and this is great because lands are reviving
16: through her initiative called Neo-Malsor, or New Highlander. She wants to encourage Albanian youth to get back to their roots and understand the traditions and customs while stimulating
15: tourism. My motto, The Future is in Our Roots, describes actually almost in the full picture of what I mean with normal solom. Normal store meaning, so the new, actually the new Highlander actually is a wide a concept that wants to raise awareness. And how important is it for us to go back to nature, to connect with our roots and to live by sustainable means. She wants to inspire others to follow her lead and
16: offer tourists a unique insight into how Albanian highlanders lived. Open air kitchen with wood fires, fresh seasonal produce and properties built into the side of mountains, best accessible by boat and where internet is out of the question.
15: One of my main focuses is the old, almost excellent gastronomy. I am working every day to use very old peas and recipes and foods that people used to live from and used to enjoy for centuries And foods that are really simple, made of three, four ingredients, maximum, and both are very organic or very delicious. But furthermore, above all, they have such a great history. We have such treasures, such uh, jewels that need to be well preserved and inherited to the other generations as we inherited them from our ancestors. So people here have a very great love actually for, for where they come from, for their roots, for their houses and for their culture in general. Alice Taylor,
16: DW, Northern Albania.
1: And as we wrap up this week's show with the traditional sounds of northern Albania, a reminder we'll be reviewing Poland's parliamentary elections next week on the show, which the ruling nationalists are predicted to win. It's great to see new listeners find Inside Europe every week on multiple podcast platforms. A reminder to hit the subscribe button and give us a review as it helps to promote the show to other listeners. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Mikhail Springer. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for listening. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.